0: Good evening, church family. I am wearing a vest because you may only get five days in a year where you can. (laughs) Because I've lived in this state long enough to know that there's about seven or eight different summers every year. And it's just a matter of how close to December do they get. Uh, So, uh, hence, and apparently... Uh, John John Grimes and I were the only ones who got the memo. It's yellow shirt, yellow Henley shirt day. Um, but hey, so here's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna uh, potentially we may get through this all tonight. Potentially we may not. Just as I've as I've looked through and pulled stuff, um, because I want to. What, what what we come to tonight when we talk about spiritual warfare is really the sum total of. Back up for the last four weeks, where we've been and where where we've been trying to get to, uh, and, and every in every sermon or every teaching, you inevitably you've got some kind of an intro, but you've got the body, your your exegesis, you're walking through the passage. But in the words of my grandfather, if you if you leave everybody without the so what do I do the application. You, you've you've not gotten through the whole message and in some ways, we've really been in like a four week long message and tonight really starts the primary core application, even though we've had application or tried to each week. And so I want to walk through to make sure we understand clearly because at the core of everything we've been doing, back up, as crazy as this is, we're halfway through October and we, First, had that crazy worldview night last January. We're closer to back. Yeah, we're we're almost there again. When we talk about developing a biblical worldview, really, what we're talking about is equipping yourself and and at, to fight and actually fighting spiritual warfare. That's what we're talking about. And I am still convinced to this day that the number one reason the state of our world is what it is, specifically the state of our country is it what it is, is because the state of our churches is pathetic. And the state of many of our churches is pathetic, some because uh, we could debate whether they were really a true church to begin with based on their theology. But for churches that have correct theology, by and large, we have done a poor job. It goes back to those worldview stats. The overwhelming majority of people sitting in a room in any good, solid church do not possess a biblical Christ-like worldview. So in salvation, they have the mind of Christ, but in practical living it out, they don't live out the mind of Christ. And so it's vital that we understand this because this is is what it is. So just to remind us where we've been, we've looked at two categories. Uh, we've, We've looked at, and this is on your cheat sheet, we've looked at the unseen realm, We've we've seen that in reality, when when we look at the world in a a biblical worldview, when a Christian who is influenced thoroughly by God's word and God's word alone looks at reality, we understand that there is a physical creation right in front of us that is real. It's actual. At the risk of being a little ridiculous, that table your stuff is on, it's real. It's not an imaginary table. It's tangible, tangible. We have real bodies. The physical really matters. We live in this real world where there are scientific laws like gravity. Doesn't matter where you go, there's gravity. Just matters how hard the gravity pulls you down. But we also, and so in in seeing that, we certainly affirm there is a value to science, to natural philosophy, but only so much as it's actually equipped to tell us truth. We also acknowledge that even in this physical world, there are things that resemble the spiritual world. Hence, why we all know a human being is more than just flesh and blood and chemicals. No sane person thinks when they say, I love you to their sweet little kid, that they're saying the chemicals in my body are spontaneously moving to produce a kind feeling toward you. No one thinks that. There's something, there's something beyond this world about about love, about caring for someone, about bond. We know that because we also affirm there is a real spiritual realm. There's a real spiritual realm where there's a real place, heaven, where those who are in Christ go upon their death, where where God has chosen at this point in time to make to, to make his presence and glory most manifest and revealed, where, where the angels are there around his throne praising, where all those who have gone on and died before us are there. There's a real place in the spiritual realm called hell, where those who have died apart from Christ, where some of the demonic hosts that are already bound and in chains and thrown in, are there currently uh, receiving the just wrath of God, waiting for the final judgment. We know that there are both angels and and there are some demons who obviously are not bound because uh, Scripture describes those as well, that, that we can't see, but that see us, that interact in this world, and specifically when it comes to the demonic host, as we'll start here in a second, that don't just interact in this world. But from a standpoint of, but from a certain standpoint, they rule this world. And don't mistake me. Jesus rules the world. Jesus is in control. Jesus is the captain behind the wheel of the ship. The ship will only go where He says it will go. But the demons run amok all over the ship, and how they influence people and where they go. This is the reality. Of where we live. And if that's the reality, then it has to change the way that we daily live, move, and breathe, and see, interact with, and go about the world we see. So I invite you, we've got several passages we're going to get through tonight. Uh, but before, before we turn, well, you can go ahead and turn. We're, we're going to start out in Ephesians 6. And, and we're going to start there and should we make it through my notes? We'll end there. Should we not come back next week? We'll end there. <laughs> no, no matter what week it is, we'll end in Ephesians 6, but we're going to start there too. But let me ask you this question. When you think of spiritual warfare, what imagery comes to mind? And if, if what you're expecting tonight is, is a Baptist class on casting out demons and exorcism, you are sorely going to be disappointed because we're not going to address any of that, because that's not even in Scripture the bulk of what spiritual warfare is. It's not that it's not real, but that's not what the bulk of it is. If if what you think by spiritual warfare is, yeah, that that's the stuff those really hardcore Pentecostal charismatics talk about, and they just strike me as strange, so I just don't think about it. Well, that's not good either, because Scripture is clear that you and I are living in the midst of a real war, a real battle. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, for our war, is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Church family, if we're going to fight the actual spiritual war that's in front of us, we've got to actually be able to look and see the real enemy in the real battle. And notice what the passage says it says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Schemes is is a word that means a devious method. It's a way of doing something deceptive, especially in a systematic way. It implies an orderly, logical arrangement of steps, craftiness. Here's what it says. It says the devil... Has a brilliant mind in which he plans tactically and strategically key steps and strategies, schemes to mislead and destroy people, from what we know last week about the devil. By the way, it's the same word used earlier in Ephesians when he's calling us to maturity as a body. And he says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the tricky of man, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Part of maturity as a believer is that if spiritual warfare is a raging wind and we're a tree, is that we begin to get to the point where we sway less and less where we're planted, where we're rooted, where we're established in Christ. So there there are schemes, devious, well-thought-out schemes, but notice this. It says our struggle, and this is a fascinating word because that word for struggle, it's found nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. This is the only time that, that any author of Scripture uses this word in the Greek New Testament. It's a common word that dealt with the sport of wrestling, not WWE fake, planned out, that like wrestling, classic Greco-Roman wrestling. And it refers to the idea of a close hand-to-hand combat. And it's interesting because it's here in a passage you would expect more of a military word, but, but really, th- this is a wrestling word. It's, it's a close hand-to-hand combat where, where you, you use trickery, cunning and strategy. It speaks to a personal fight. In contrast to, if you've ever followed the story of uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, that the five missionaries killed in Ecuador and the tribe eventually comes to faith in Christ, some of them would come to America uh, and live with Steve Saint and uh, Nate's son. And it's interesting, when, when they watched, they were fascinated by World War II documentaries. So here, here is a people group, is the people group that has the highest murder rate of any known people group prior to their salvation. And when they saw the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan... It was interesting, their perspective of it, because they were like, that's so evil, that's so cowardly, because you don't even know who you're killing. Now, I think we've grown so accustomed in what we think of warfare, that's kind of what warfare is. Notice the language here. It's not some impersonal, emotionless, drop a bomb, don't know who lived, who died. It's personal. The battle we're engaged in looks at you as an individual. It's personal. It's intense. It's handcrafted to come after you, to wrestle you through trickery, through deceit, through cunning. Not only this, but 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 the struggle is not against, notice flesh and blood. So the personalness of this battle is not against the president and his cabinet and agenda. It's not against the Senate. Or the house. It's not against Putin. It's not against, and don't mistake me, this battle that's not against flesh and blood does take place for us in a flesh and blood realm. But we've got to be clear the enemy is not flesh and blood, it's far worse. But against the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness all of these words the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places all of these words refer to demonic powers who are far stronger than us who have far greater intelligence and cunning than us and whom we can't see whom according to Ephesians 2 they follow they follow the leadership of of their leader, Satan, the prince of the power of air, who is at the forefront of leading all world culture. And it's them who look at us as believers in a personal and intense, in and well, you, you know the phrase whenever you have to do something hard, oh, it's not personal. No, 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 reverse it here. It's personal. It's not just coming after you generically because you're a believer. No, no, no. It's coming after you because you're you. Insert your name there. It's personal. It's cunning. It's trickery. It's, this is the reality of the battle. Not only that, but I told you, whatever you gotta do to mark Ephesians 6, mark it. But flip over with me to the right, to First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five. Verse six, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he does in fact care for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. We'll come back to those things. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Your adversary, your hostile enemy, the devil, which literally means the one who slanders, the one who brings false charges of a malicious, insidious, and hostile nature against someone, your your slanderous accuser, which we see, and and you've got some other scripture scripture references on on your page, and we, we looked at some of those last week. He prowls around, he walks about, And you get a great impression of whenever you see Satan in Job 1, what does he say? I have been walking about the earth. I have been going to and fro amongst the earth. He prowls around, seeking actively. And that word seeking means to devote serious effort. Satan takes time and devotes intentional and serious effort to go after his objective, which what is his objective? Seeking to what? To devour. And it's literally that that word is the picture of if if you've ever seen Jurassic Park and the T-Rex just throws the goat up in the air and swallows it whole, that's what that word means. It is just a carnivorous, just devouring. It's not a trick. It's not a injure. It's not. It is a just complete and total obliteration. And I, and I mentioned this last night. I remember looking into this this years ago about about lions, the imagery of the lions, and what that looks like. And I'll come back to that. So, but I want you to see we, we, our battle is against these spiritual forces. And when you look at the leader of these spiritual forces and what he's doing, he is devoting intentional, active imagery uh, uh, energy to finding ways to devour, to destroy, to bring destruction in whatever way he can. So so this leads us to this. And some of this is a little bit of a rehash, but we need the rehash to get to where we're going. The realities of spiritual warfare means this, our enemy, if we're going to see clearly who's our enemy and what's the battle, our enemy is a complete and total murderous destroyer. We mentioned this last week, John 8. He's a murderer from the beginning. We know that he's the father of lies. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he places a veil over the heart of unbelievers. What is he after? He is after completely and totally destroying any image bearer of God. To take a lost person who's an image bearer of God, the greatest way to destroy them is to blind their heart to the gospel and see them face justice for their sin. Because isn't that wild? Even though Satan is the ultimate enemy, we still are accountable for our own decisions because God is just. Which also means in all of this conversation about spiritual warfare, do not miss. Human beings sin because we want to sin. So yes, we do. there is a real enemy out there who's leading people in that way, but it's not leading them against their will. When you and I are by definition dead in our trespasses and sins, the reality is the better question is not, let me me put it this way. The better question when you look at the world is not, why is the world getting so bad now? The better question is, why has it ever been better than this? Because if you are lost and dead in trespasses and sins, there's no reason you should ever desire to do anything good. That's the definition of being dead in trespasses and sins. But his aim is to absolutely destroy. If he can destroy God's image bearers by seeing them not respond, that's it. Well, what about those of us who respond? We mentioned this last week. What the enemy wants to do when God saves one of us and reconciles us to himself, and you read all throughout scripture, all of the various incredible words that are tied to the glory of that salvation, there is a fullness, a richness of life of relationship to be experienced even now before heaven and certainly in heaven and certainly in the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth when the Lord returns. There is a fullness to be known. The enemy now wants to do anything that he can to deceive, to manipulate, to keep us as believers from knowing the true fullness and intimacy that God has promised. Whatever he can do to sow destructions. We see that he is intentional, he is active, which means he is not half-hearted. And the issue about spiritual warfare is not if you will ever face it, it's when. He's active and intentional. He's an opportunist. Rarely attacking from the front, but, but, but when you are in a lull, see that with Adam and Eve, he uses deceptions to trick his victims into eating rather than openly challenging. This is where the stuff about lions comes in. Lions are unbelievably patient. If you ever saw Lion King, and I know most are older, so you've probably been taking your kids or your grandkids to see it. I saw it as like a five-year-old, but I remember seeing it. It's a great movie. And there's the scene in The Lion King where Simba is practicing his pouncing. And he's trying to sneak through the grass to pounce on the bug. That's what lions do. They're patient. They take their time. They wait for their prey. Their prey's aware. They see the pack of lions, but they're gonna just wait until that prey finally decides, you know what? They're probably gonna leave us alone. They stalk their prey. They wait until the prey is drowsy. They don't realize they're there Typically, and this is what this means for you and I on a level, is when we, and you'll see this in some of these passages, they're, they're, we've already seen it once about humble yourselves. When we live in pride, what we are doing as believers is dulling ourselves to the presence of a real enemy who watches us get comfortable. That enemy's not really going to attack. It's probably not really that bad. I, I can just... I can go ahead and eat the grass here. I can hang out and, and I don't need to really be on alert. I, I can get, ooh, I can get comfortable here. It's nice. It's fall outside. I can wear a poofy vest. And in that pride, hey, I think I got this, you know? I took one step. I took another step. They're not moving. Ah, I got, and in that pride, we begin to not pay as strong attention to the word of our Lord. depending on his strength, we forget our weakness. And in that pride, we begin to be lulled and Satan will wait for that pride to, to creep up. And just like lions strike when they can't be seen, so Satan and his host of demons, they love to not be seen. And this is why I say it's so key that we do away with some of the imagery of, oh, spiritual warfare, that's that's the kid in the creepy, the creepy house who walks out and the eyes roll back in their head and a weird, deep-sounding, nasty voice comes out that everybody, including the lost people, are terrified of. Now, I'm not saying that there's not demonic stuff behind that too. What I'm saying is, you go throughout Scripture, there's far more Demonic influence behind the scenes, guiding and moving and seeking to influence human affairs to do wicked and awful and horrible things, then there is Hollywood nonsense. It's common for lions to sit and watch their prey in the daylight. They identify who's sick, who's already feeding sin in their own life, they identify who's hurting who's already gone through hardships and trials, who's, who's already struggling with a little bit of doubt. They identify who's weak or who's young, and they go after them. They growl, they, they roar, not growl. They roar to disorient. And if you've ever been to a zoo and you're in another part of the zoo and you hear the lions roar, you know what I'm talking about. Because it doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the zoo. When you hear the lions roar, you're like, holy smokes, where are they? They're right on, and it just bounces off Everything. That's what they do. They disorient. Where are they coming from? I don't know. Now I'm looking around. There's danger. I don't know where it's coming. This this is the idea, and they they do it to frighten their prey. Here's the reality Satan's an opportunist church family. He studies us, he knows where we're vulnerable. Listen, you want to know why no two temptations are alike for us? God has never tempted me with drugs. Certainly, they were available. I'm a millennial but it's never been a temptation to me. But most guys my age, anorexia was never a temptation to them as a teenager, but it was to me. We're all wired different. Different hurts, different bruises. Some things inherently were drawn to, some things that other people in their sin did things wrong and has created a hurt, a sorrow. Satan watches all of it. And by the way, Satan watches all of it, and I'm using Satan probably more generically, the, the demonic host watches all of it from the, I'm convinced, the time we're born. You know, so what do you do with the kid who says, well, as long as I can remember, I've always been attracted to people of the same sex. Well, on one hand, it could be that as you've fallen down that rabbit hole, the enemies whispered those lies and you think that's true. It's a possibility. It's also a possibility that when you were four, Satan doesn't care that you're four. He'll shoot that junk at you at four if he knows he can take you down with it at fifteen. We think, right? Hey, in good warfare, you should spare the women and the children. Satan doesn't care about women or children, and care who you are, where you are, what age you are. He will do whatever he can. Satan attacks, things that they come in. Certainly, we see demonic possession in Scripture. We see suffering. Example of Job, you see persecutions, discouragement, things that are meant to intimidate, to get us to quit, to, to, to get us to be silent, to no longer preach the gospel, to stand for truth, or to force us into to compromising and into uh, um, to conformity with the ideas they're peddling in society, you see slanderous attacks, condemnation, reminding us of past sin, even though we've repented from it. You see temptations, and by the way, temptation doesn't have to be the big sins—pride, pleasure, acceptance, fear, worry, doubt. We see in Ephesians four twenty-seven, Satan tries to gain a foothold through, through uncontrolled anger, through through speech that has falsehood in it. So think about that, if you're prone to false flattery or or exaggeration, that really is inappropriate. I'm not saying all exaggeration is inappropriate, but some exaggeration is absolutely inappropriate. And some exaggeration in certain places is inappropriate. It's one thing to be the old football coach, you can't really remember what the score was when you came back from one touchdown down, but now it's five touchdowns down. It's another thing to know good and well when you write your resume that you wrote something that's not true or maybe it's not false but it's certainly not true it's exaggerated there's these things satan works through lies the primary means of his assault to take to take truth about god's nature about god's character about god's word about the world about sin about ourselves and to give some truth but to twist it to where it's all a lie but it sounds good It sounds right. It fits in the limited knowledge that I have. It flows. It seems to compute. This could be on a personal level, it could be on a societal level. False thoughts, false beliefs. 99.9% truth is always 100% of a lie. He'll use lies to take our strengths and play them to weaknesses. He'll aim to divide and destroy, even in the name of a good cause. Anything to move us from a position of standing firm in Jesus, his truth, his victory, who he is, how he is, what he says. And these things all present, I mean, I'm sure as I say some of that, if, if, unless you're living under a rock, you've got thoughts coming to your mind of ways you see that happening both in our country and in our churches right now. And I mentioned the example last week. I mean, Satan pulls you to pulls. Should we as a church be at the forefront of helping the poor in society? Absolutely. Scripture says it. In fact, James has been really clear with us that if we ignore it, we're not honoring the Lord. But for the last 150 years, what's called the true social gospel, where the gospel of Christ is about giving a cup of cold water and has nothing to do with any kind of sin and repentance and salvation or anything, or what today would be labeled progressive Christianity, it's taking truths of Scripture and twisting them And to a generation like mine and the one below that was raised on the Disney Channel where the core ethic is, as long as everybody feels really good about themselves, it's all good there's a temptation there. But equally, as you slide this way, you've got people who are going to be open to thoughts and ideas that go the other way, that go, well, well look how you're twisting and co opting. Look at how you're trying to essentially make us, even if we, if you actually hold to Christianity like Christian socialists, and then we all of a sudden fall over this way to the other opposite end of the spectrum, and we're advocating for things that you're going, holy Smokes. In fact, the uh, the uh, the the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the current president Bart Barber, pastors uh, First Baptist Friends, Friendsville up northeast of Dallas. He was on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago. I didn't know about it till after the fact. 13 minute interview over stuff going on in the SBC. Anderson Cooper in, in, interviewed him, and and he read. And I, I'm not familiar. I couldn't tell you who it was, but some some church pastor. I don't know if he was Baptist or not. Who who was. Not just advocating for something that the media twisted to Christian nationals, like was legitimately calling for Christian nationalism, for the national institution of Christianity as the religion of the country, and, and special provisions for it against and all this. And so he brings us up to try to trap, I'm assuming, uh, Bart. But Bart is a really smart church history guy. And Bart said, I can't ever stand for that because to be a Baptist is to stand convictionally for the fact that no one can be compelled into faith, which is why we support on a government level true religious freedom. Which again, historically, where'd that idea come in America? From the Baptists. We've got to be careful. We don't get distorted in those things. That's what the enemy loves to do. But here's the good news, church family. Church family. Some of the demons are already in chains receiving punishment, and those that still are left in this world, it is clear, they can only do what God allows them space to do. Which means when we think about this battle, on one hand, I hope up to this point, there's a little bit of terror for all of us. That's good, it should humble us. And from our knees now humble, we should look up and go, oh, praise God, our Jesus who loves us, he's actually still on the throne. And now that we're on our knees humbled we can start to put on the armor and fight because we're confident of who he is and not that we know everything and we've got it. So we've got to look, we've got to see, we've got to know the real enemy and the real fight, which now means this, we've got to stand and fight the real fight. So look back down with me at First Peter there. Now notice, I do want you to notice, this and James, James 4, we'll look at later, says, humble your, says, submit yourselves to God Resist the devil. I want you to notice both in James and Peter, there is a pattern here. Before you go and you address the spiritual fight with the enemy, it starts with humbling, with submitting to God. You know part of that, why? Because if Satan's if Satan's row is to lie, to get us to buy off false beliefs, to tempt us with sin, you can instantly cut a lot of that off and you go, Lord, I submit to what you say, how you say it, and I submit to the fact this is sin and, and you're right and I'm wrong. Submission will cure a lot of the spiritual warfare in your life personally. So notice that there's that pattern. Why also? Because when we get proud, and it's why if you think back, if you were here when we first did that that couple weeks on worldview, and and I intentionally overwhelmed you with all these stats about how the horrific state of the average church is with worldview, and I told you, I want you to question whether or not you have a biblical worldview because the stats say the majority of us don't. That is to humble us and not go, I've been, a all, I've been a Christian all my life. If you say all your life, then you're probably not a Christian because there's got to be a moment of salvation. I've been a Christian for 55 years, pastor. That's awesome. That doesn't mean you have a biblical worldview. So there's a humility there, but look, look specifically what Scripture says Devil, the adversary prowls around like a lion, seeking those to devour. Look at verse 9, but, or sorry, back up to verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith, be sober. By the way, all of these are what we call aorist imperatives in the the Greek. You don't got to know what aorist imperative is other than this. It is the most urgent and passionate way you can give a command in the Greek language. So it's not just giving a command. It's not, it's not telling your kid, take out the trash. That's a command. Kid, take out the trash. Not a suggestion. I didn't ask if you wanted to. Take it out. An aorist imperative is you standing at the front door your child being in the middle of the street, you unable to get to them and a car hurling down the street and you with the most urgency and passion you possibly can in your voice screaming, get out of the road. You're not suggesting they get out of the road, you're commanding them but there is an urgency a passion behind that behind that command that's what this is it's not just simply a command it is saying wake up be sober be self-controlled literally curb the influence of inordinate emotions and desires quite literally this see things as they actually are take the fog out of your eyes be alert be in constant readiness Church family, we cannot fight what we do not see. And this is part of why I don't think the enemy's just all of a sudden ramped up his work in our culture. I think it's just shifted how it's taking its form. Rewind the clock back. Go back to when all the rage was man you got to you got to put in that 60 hour work week so you can get that salary so you can set aside that retirement so you can and this is all in the name you know, christian you should be hard worker you should and all of a sudden i as a believer and so consumed Did I I get in that nicer house? Do we have that nicer car? Did I get the kids into that better school? Oh, Johnny wants to play baseball. That's great. We got to make sure he's at the Little League. We got to make sure he's on this tournament team and that tournament team because you know Johnny's going to be a major league baseball player, even though statistics say less than 0.05% of kids will ever touch a major league game. On down the line, all of a sudden, you you, you can't fight what you're not seeing and you can't see what you're too busy to ever pay attention to because you're too wrapped up in all the lights and pretty sounds around you. We've got to pay attention. We've got to be sensitive to the spirit. We cannot be drunk on the world and this this world's ways. We've got to pay attention to warning signs. What are warning signs that you very personally could be caught in spiritual warfare? Temptation that comes out of the blue. Where'd that come from? Why is that there? I'm not doing anything to feed that. Where's it coming from? Increased anger, lack of patience, abnormal emotion. Being presented with ideas that sound really good and seem accurate, but fall short when you investigate them to scripture. Dealing with hostility from an individual, individuals that no matter what you do will not subside. Finding major tension between uh, Christians over doctrine, living. Uh, here, heres All of these things can be signs that there is spiritual warfare either going on in your life or around your life. It says we've got to wake up and see it. Got to wake up and see it, and that's the danger of thinking spiritual warfare is is is. um... And by the way, I've never seen like The Exorcist in all these movies, so when I use these as examples, like please no, that's not my. mm -mm. But when we think spiritual warfare is all this crazy exorcist stuff, you know what that inadvertently does? Well, that's that crazy stuff. Mm, I don't know about that. I'm gonna, and we become blind to what it really is. How I think. You can't fight what you don't see. And it says, see things as they really are, be sober, be alert, resist, be be firm against someone else's onset. It refers to something active, a a choice we've got to make. And how do we resist? By being steadfast, firm, not shakable in our faith, in in resting in what, what is actually true. And understand, here's the good news about this on a personal level, church family. If you and I are given the command by God to resist the devil, it means it's possible to resist the devil. Because God does not give commands that by his power living within us, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not his power, but God himself, the Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us by his grace, there is no command of his that he can't meet through us. There's plenty of commands you and I can't meet of our own. That's impartially to show a lost person that they're not saved. They don't measure up. But it means that the enemy can be resisted, can be set against, can, can be stood against. And our ability to resist is assured because it says in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus, after going to the cross, he held all of the demonic forces up in public shame. Because he's won. He's not going to win. He's already won. So there should be a confidence as we seek to resist. There should be an attitude shift that says, it does not matter. If, if, I, if I have dearly held and cherished beliefs that went on upon further investigation and I look at Scripture, I realize they're not there. Then an attitude of resisting the enemy says, if something is not true... I'm not afraid to chunk it because my disposition is submission to God, humility before God, and resisting any lie that would come from the enemy's mouth, no matter how deeply held and cherished it is and how good it might sound. I mean, goodness. And does the lie that if you really have great faith in Jesus, he'll heal every disease and he'll make sure you have a guaranteed $250,000 salary and a good car. I mean, some of that sounds facetious, but you've ever listened to some of those prosperity gospel teachers? I'm underplaying it. That that sounds really good. I don't care how good it sounds. If we're gonna resist the enemy, we have to have a disposition that says if something is against the word of God and thereby default against God himself, I will detach myself from it as soon as I see the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's part of what it means to resist. Here's what else. And I've thought about this. When you walk through Scripture, when you walk through Scripture, and specifically, let's hone in on the New Testament, there are certainly several instances, major instances of of, of Jesus showing his authority over the demons. There are a couple spots where Jesus tells his disciples that in me, I'm giving you the authority to cast out demons. When you move to the book of Acts, which is describing the early church, you see a few, a, truly just a few. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it, it's not more than maybe one, two, or three of, of casting out Demons. but when you read the majority of the book of Acts and then when you turn to all the rest of the New Testament epistles that describe for you and I in the most direct way possible as followers of Jesus in the new covenant of his blood, what it looks like to follow him, what is expected, how we are to live and operate, move. and Isn't it interesting? There is no how to cast out a demon passage There is no how to identify the various levels and ranks of the demonic and call out their names passage. I can keep going, but there are nothing but passages on This is the gospel. You better make sure you understand it. There are nothing but passages on. This is the kind of holiness God expects to look from your life. There are nothing but passages on. This is how you should think. This is how you should take captive. Let's just think about the book of Romans. Paul spends 11 chapters defending the gospel that is by grace through faith alone. And when he finally gets to chapter 12 and says, therefore, in light of 11 chapters of hardcore systematic theology about how you're saved and what that means... Therefore, first command, be transformed in your mind, how you think. There is a whole lot of stuff. We, looked, we went through Philippians last year, church family. How many times did we come upon the verb, reckon, consider, think, take captive your thoughts? And so you see this, Second Corinthians chapter 10. Now, contextually, here in chapter 10, it's interesting. Paul is defending himself against the Corinthians' false uh, false attacks on his apostlehood. Paul, you're not a fancy speaker. Paul, you wouldn't let us give you money. Paul, you're not really who you say you are. We're, we're, we're buying into these super apostles, which I love that like the issues in the first century church are the same issues as today. It just people don't change. Just... Just our clothes, air conditioning, and technology, that's what changes. Um, And facial hairstyles and hairstyles, stuff like that. So he's actually defending them against these false thoughts, which he says to them in chapter 11, verse 3. He says, uh, my fear is you're being led astray like Eve was led astray by Satan. My fear is Satan is influencing your thoughts because you are so caught up in appearance and what things look like. You're so caught up in this and you are thinking satanically. So well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this. I'm going to respond to this. And here's what he says. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, though I literally live in the flesh, I don't war.'" according to the flesh. Or in the flesh we are living, but not in the flesh are we warring. It says for the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. They're not swords. They're not shields. They're not helmets. They're not for the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful. Quite literally a term that says that the term for power means something has the actual ability to do what it sets out to do. The weapons of our warfare can actually do what they say they can do because they are, and the phrasing is, able to do of God. They're not just able to do it as if they're able to do it, but they're able to do it because they come from God. It's his power, which who's more powerful than God? No one. Yes, please, no one. Let's, if we don't know that, then we need, I need to start all over. Um, don't be afraid to say no one. No one's more powerful than God. Says these weapons for the destruction, for literally the leveling to a flat plane, strongholds, and and we destroy speculation. We destroy. Thoughts of a cognitive, calculating, reasoning, we destroy them. Again, same word, we dismantle, we undo, we overpower them. And any lofty thing, which in arrogance raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And knowledge of God there is not your knowledge of God or my knowledge of God, it's the true knowledge of God. Not my opinion about God, your opinion about God, God's opinion about God. And we are, and and it says, taking every thought captive taking every thought into a prisoner of war is the literal term so here's where we'll wrap tonight before we before we pray to conclude tonight. and we'll we'll pick back up next time we've got to be awake and and see the actual battle we've got to be on a constant state of readiness Listen, that's part of why when you read about rest, part of what, we, what will we do in heaven when we looked at it, we will rest. We will rest. But What are we resting from? Because we're also gonna work in heaven. Yeah, but we will never have to fight in the war again. There will be no enemy to tempt. There will be no false truth running around. There will be no divisions in the body. There will be no separations over this or that. We will rest. So understand what that means, believer. And especially because many of you, you have walked with God for a long time. If you're still living and breathing in this world, it's not time for us to rest. The Christian life is one of constant alertness to the battle. We don't ever get to power down. Take a physical nap, yes. Take a spiritual nap, never. We have to resist the devil. Well, one of the ways we're gonna resist, what is it? It's to take the weapons. We can look more at that in the coming weeks, but it's to take the weapons that are powerful to destroy strongholds, these, these strongholds of thoughts, these ways of thinking, these fortresses that are, that are leading people astray. How do we come at those? We don't come at those with flesh and blood. But how do we come at those? What does it say? Taking every thought prisoner of war. The overwhelming majority of spiritual warfare that you see presented in Scripture and that you will experience and I will experience in this life is going to take place between here. It's going to be the thoughts that you and I latch onto about God, who He is, what He's like, about ourselves, about the world, about what's okay, about what's not not okay. It's going to be the thoughts that we latch onto. That is where the battle takes place. But historically, and especially when you study historical American Christianity, one of the major things that happened as the second great awakening took place had an awesome start. Prayer revi- prayer meetings, and initially had a great start. But but what it became as it went on is it became a very emotionally sensationalized. And you'd sweep in with these revivals; they'd be real emotional. People would have these experiences, oh, we we saw all these people, boom, and then they leave town. By the way, both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness came about in areas that had been swept in by revivals and then left in no follow-up discipleship. And part of what developed in the Second Great Awakening, specifically unique to American Christianity in which we are still impacted by the day, is that everything had to be about meeting my emotional need. And what that developed into as time went on was what we call an anti-intellectualism, which means, pastor, if you talk to me about anything that causes me to think, ooh, I don't want that. I I just need you to help me know how to feel good about Jesus and make it through my week. Now listen, there's no problem about wanting to feel good about Jesus and make it through your week when you're underslept and you've got four kids and they're running around. I'm not knocking the fact that there are felt needs we need to address as a church. Guess what? Scripture addresses those too. But we became so hyper-focused there that one of the things that has happened over the last hundred years is that we have not done a whole lot to build up the mind of the body. And so it does not surprise me at all when I see so many people, old and especially young, who at a certain point realize the emotional sensationalism only goes so far. And if there's not any real faith there at all, then it's not even of any validity whatsoever And are then tossed to and fro by all these thoughts that come left and right, forward and back. And church family, I'm telling you, if we're going to be and grow into maturity, then one of the ways, the primary way we're going to fight, we're going to resist the enemy. We better be vigilant over what we actually think. You want to know one of the best ways to be vigilant in that? It's to read your Bible. Bible. I'm not trying to be, have your quiet time. Read your Bible. You want to know how to pick out a counterfeit $1 bill? Know the, one, know the real thing really well, because there's going to be infinite forms of counterfeit. Read your Bible. Pray. And I'm not saying all parts of the Bible are easy or fun to read all the time. But it's sad to me when half the people in our church, you go, ah, we're gonna go read, we're gonna go walk through, uh, we're gonna go walk through the book of Hezekiah, and everybody's flipping through their Bibles trying to find it. You go, there is no Hezekiah. There's a King Hezekiah, but no book Hezekiah. We are gonna walk through Habakkuk, and Habakkuk, I've never, I didn't even know there was a Habakkuk in the Bible. Now don't take that personally if you'd never read Habakkuk before we walked through it. That's not what I mean. But one of the number one ways we're gonna take captive our thoughts. What are you gonna take them captive to? Truth, but it's hard to take them captive if you don't know truth. So hence, come back to this example that we're gonna pray. Sitting in the car with my dad, I've shared this before just once, outside the barber, junior high, and this really, and I I still like the song, this really popular Christian song of that year, came on the radio, and dad said, oh, it's the heresy song. The heresy song. I said, listen to it. It's a song, Audience of One, by Big Daddy Weave. For my audience of one. Live in, you know, live in my, man, and, and, and by the way, uh, and, and I know some of you, you, you obviously weren't in my shoes at that time. I can't tell you how many Camps and d that was the theme, audience of That was a very impactful song because of the theme, audience of one. But it says this, you are father and you are son. As your spirit flows free, let it find within me a heart that beats to praise you. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, except the spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. He's a he. He's not a force. He's not some emotional thing that God sends. He's a he, yet we have a major song out there in the chorus of the theme, the audience of one. Oh, let your spirit flow through and let it, let it find within me. Now, that's a, that's a strange, I didn't plan to go there tonight, so it's best I got off the top of my head. But my point is, most believers, and including myself, until my dad said, hey, listen to it again, and I knew that there then had to be something wrong, Right? Most believers have listened to that song and think it's awesome, yet it fails to ascribe the glory and deity to our Lord that he deserves. How many more things like that? And how are you going to know the Spirit's not in it? Not from Google. Through the Word. Through the Word. So here's what I want to do. I I want us to pray to end the night. And and real simply, here's just what what uh, I'd like us to pray tonight as we, as we walk through this. So we've, we've got kind of three various things. One of those things is revival in our church. So out of this, here's what I'd just like for us to pray, that as we think about praying for revival in our lives as a church family, that we would really pray that God would really help us see as believers where have we bought in to, to, to lies that maybe we're not aware of? Where do we need to be taking captive our thoughts? Uh, where, where do we need to be, where, where do we need to be awakened and have the fog pulled out of our eyes? Um, do that because understand this. I truly think this. I don't think the church today is reflective of our society. I think our society today is reflective of our churches. Because if the body of Christ is the light of God to the world, and the world looks like it doesn't have a clue where the lighthouse is, then the problem's not with the world because they've never known where the light is. They don't have the light. The problem's with the people who do have the light and are supposed to be shining it every which direction. Again, that is a thus saith Wes. Feel free to disagree. That's not a thus saith the Lord, but We do need to be praying to take our thoughts captive. So if you just do that at your your tables, and uh, as I hear things kind of wane, I'll close us out in prayer, and I really appreciate you being here tonight, church family, and uh, we will have a great time Sunday talking about the tongue and how we speak. No one needs help with that. Yeah, all right. Y'all pray at your tables, and I'll close us here in a second. Father, I just, I do ask on, Lord, just our behalf as a church, that you would light a fresh fire in our hearts, that you would breathe um, a fresh wind into our sails. And, and Lord, I already believe you've been doing that, so I just ask that you'd continue to do it and do it all the more. And find us ignitable, find us receptive of where you are would breathe your life into us. God, and a big part of that, Lord, if if we're going, um, God, if revival is really to to begin and start here as a church, Father, it does have to start with our minds and what we believe. So I just ask, Lord, that you would in all of our lives where there is, where there are false things we've believed, Likely some we know are false, but it's just too easy to, to fall on them. Thoughts of insecurity, thoughts of um, self-criticism, things like that. Lord, there may, may be thoughts that are false that we don't realize are false. God, would you shine your light of truth, Holy Spirit, out from our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see those things? God, that we would see them clearly, that we would repent of them, God, and that, and that we would actively seek out, Lord, what is true, and, and, and replace that false thought with what is true. God, that we would not be guilty, God, of falling to the lies of the enemy, directly, directly, Lord, I think sometimes the enemy just knows the right way to, to throw something ridiculous out there and then we just take and run, run with it. And it, I'm not even so sure it's him doing it. It's just us running around with it. Lord, we, we just be people that are about your word. We don't wanna fall short of believing what your word says and we sure as goodness don't wanna go and make up stuff your word doesn't say and go beyond your word. We wanna be people of your word because Lord, if, if we are yours, then we are people of you. So, Lord, there is a spiritual war that rages around us. And, and, and Lord, obviously, we didn't get through all the ways that we respond to that. We just got through a few. But remove the fog from our eyes. God, when when we turn on the news, rather than being exclusively discouraged, frustrated, worried, scared by how bad the market is, how much the retirement accounts dipped, how horrible the world is, how how jobs are threatened, is persecution coming, all the various thoughts that run through. Lord, would you open our eyes when we see the news to see the real war that's taking place? Would you open our eyes and, and, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, not just to see it, but how we need to get on our knees and pray specifically about it because lord the reality is our weapons won't demolish any stronghold but your weapons will obliterate to a smooth flat surface any stronghold jesus may may, may you convict us where we are proud where we think we're not in danger, where we think we've got it. God, would you convict us? Because what I don't, we don't need to be doing is just running around and doubting everything we once thought. And we don't need a spirit of doubt, Lord. What we need is a spirit of honest humility. So Lord, we need to be convicted of pride that's lulled us to sleep. God, wake us up, convict us. And Lord, as we fall on our knees, recognizing that if, if you don't move, revival doesn't happen. If, if you don't move, awakening doesn't, Lord, recognizing that if, we, if, if you don't build it, we labor in vain. Lord, as we fall on our knees, may we recognize that in humble dependence, but as we fall on our knees, Lord, may we also realize Jesus. You are the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And the sacrifice she paid is our Passover lamb. Lord, you paid it and it is finished. And in realizing that, may we look up and realize, Jesus, you are the Lion of Judah. And at your roar, none can stand. You are on your throne. And the fact that you have not returned and we are still here means you are not done. So forgive us, Lord, where we've gotten distracted and in all of our lives, God, wake us up and find us responsive to your waking us up. Jesus, thank you so very much for the men and women, the brothers and sisters of mine that make up this church. You have blessed us so deeply and richly with a loving and real church family. God, would you continue to grow that, to grow that spirit? Lord, that no matter how dark everything around us gets, Lord, we would shine bright, hearts filled with true love for you and true love for each other and a real love to see this world know you. God, thank you for letting us be together. Thank you for letting us be here for such a time as this. It is in your sweet name, I pray, amen. Two real fast things. Wow, we went way over, but praise God, we were praying. Um, Sunday, you can help spread news. Sunday, the proposed church budget will be available to pick up at the Connection Corners. Uh, We'll send it out probably via email next week as well. Uh, We'll give you more information Sunday just about where to ask questions. Uh, We'll have a listening session, various things like that. And you got a good solid month to look through that thing before we have a vote on it. So the aim is that anybody who comes to the night of the vote and says, I didn't get a chance, well, that shouldn't happen. We've given you a month. Uh, That's one. Two, uh, we'll also announce Sunday that on Sunday, November the 13th, We are finally and much deservedly so going to throw our pounding for Chris and Denise Gary because they've been here for like six months and we haven't thrown them a pounding yet. Some of that was they needed to get in the house to throw a pounding for them, uh, but they're in one. We're past the initial kick to fall, so we're doing that. So we'll give that announcement Sunday, but you can just begin to help trickle that word out. So appreciate you being here. Love you all, church family, and we'll uh, see you Sunday unless we
1: see you before then. So.